This last week, I was online, as most of us are. We're having a lot of screen time. I don't know if you've realized that. You know, we've always wanted to get away from the screens, but we, I think during this pandemic, everyone's just at home on their screens all the time. But I stumbled across some cool videos from the creators of Pixar films, and they were teaching the art of storytelling. One director was sharing how we can, how telling a story, yeah, we can tell a story about car chases and explosions and monsters, and that's good and all. But what makes a story great is when we bring our life into the story. How we feel, bring that into the story. Emotions of fear, of loneliness, something from our own life. And when that is added into the story, it's more than just a boring car chase. It comes alive. I don't know if you guys have stopped to think about what we've got, what's going on in the world at the moment. To consider we're living in history. Something that's going to be remembered. We're living in a time that's going to be put on Wikipedia for generations to come to research and hear about. Stories about COVID-19 will be told, and I imagine many of us in the future will have kids, grandkids, grandkids, grandkids hearing about what life was like in 2020. Where, where cinemas and, and gyms were closed. Public places like national parks were off limits. Where there was fear, anxiety, panic buying, and, and no toilet paper where borders to states were blocked off and the world was on lockdown. Through stories, our future generations will imagine and experience life through the eyes of those who were there. People like you and I. And it's true, isn't it? To make a story go from good to great is, is when we leave that story feeling something, something that we weren't feeling before. We're taken on a journey with characters and we follow along with a plot that thickens and climaxes. The problem is, is solved and the scene is complete. And we know that's a great story. We, there's, there was a resolution. The picture, the whole picture comes together. There's a sense of fulfillment. The last scene ends. And all that tension that was built up throughout the film is resolved. We all want that sense of resolution, don't we, with the world today. We want completeness. We want a resolution. We want uh, answers. And when we see the picture unveiled, what's going on behind the scenes, we feel a certain type of certainty, don't we? And that's what we, we want. I mean, that's what I'm hearing, that we feel anxiety and uncertainty. We want to know the answer. We want to know that the problem has been solved. It's like doing a jigsaw puzzle. It's a mess when it comes out of the box, but how do you start? Usually, you know, you start finding the corner pieces and you finally find colors that, that match and you find sections that come together bit by bit the puzzle comes together. You sit and you labor over it until it's finally finished. And how does it feel? Isn't that the desire of our hearts? To understand how and why things are the way that they are. To know that there is a resolution to the issues of our world and to humanity. A resolution to a life of loneliness or unhappiness. A resolution to my search for purpose or for identity in this world. A resolution to the pain and suffering that we face in answer to death. See, the story of the cross of Jesus is really our story. We're seeing the unveiling of who Jesus is and why he came to our world. We're seeing the resolution come into view as we see the narrative of John's gospel come to its climax and how Jesus fits into the greater salvation story for humankind that God has planned for us from the start. I wanna encourage you, keep your Bibles open at John chapter 19. Um, verse 16 to 36 with me. Uh, if you are on the online.church site, there's a Bible tab on, on the right of the screen. If you're 
if you're there, uh, you can access that. You see, John's account in chapter 19, it fills out the picture of what happened to Jesus, who Jesus truly is, and how that fulfills what he came to do. You see, in the lead up to our passage, Jesus has been arrested. He's been accused. He's been flogged, beaten up, mocked, put on trial before Pilate, the Roman governor of Jerusalem at the time. What was his crime? Blasphemy. He claimed to be the son of God. And so the Jewish leaders have asked the Romans to punish him. And while Pilate was ready to release him after a beating, the, the Jewish leaders call for the death sentence. When Pilate asked, what shall he do? The angry mob, they scream, crucify, crucify. Now let me paint the picture. He's been beaten up badly. He's bleeding profusely, crown of thorns on his head, and he's ordered to carry his own cross. If you've seen um, that Mel Gibson movie, I don't know how long ago it was. It's called The Passion of, of the Christ. Um, sort of like that, I guess. It's really gory, really graphic. There's a lot of pain, a lot of blood. And he walks down the main road out of the main gates, that up, upper hill. And that road uh, out of that city, it's known as the, the, Via, the Via Dolorosa, I think it's called. You can still go there today. And, and he goes up that hill into this place called Golgotha, the place of the skull. Even the name sounds creepy. And there he faces death by crucifixion. That's what we're told in John's gospel. See, crucifixion isn't a joke. It's the worst type of death sentence you could face. You're placed a few feet off the ground on the side of the road, stripped naked, so everyone can see you in all your shame, in all your humiliation, left there until you die. The idea is a slow, torturous death by asphyxiation, where you suffocate from being hung on a cross. Even our English word, excruciating, it finds its roots in that Latin word, the Latin word for cross, crux, I think it is. And that's what it's depicting. When we think of excruciating, it's depicting the cross. And so, I don't know about you, but you know, when you've stubbed your toe on the couch and bruised yourself, this is what I use, I say, oh my goodness, because we don't use the Lord's name there, oh my goodness, Oh my gosh, the pain is excruciating. And I get it. I know how much it hurts because I've done it way too many times. But let's be honest, it's a total overstatement, isn't it? You might get away with it if, if I can't imagine what it's like giving birth. You know, it must be excruciating. You know, I can understand that. I can imagine the pain to be that bad. But here we're talking about death on a Roman cross. It's the slow, painful death. It's about pain, but you know what? It's also about shame. I read somewhere that when they put women on the cross, they, they turn them around because it's too shameful to be exposed and, and stripped bare on the side of the road. It's reserved for, for the lowliest of criminals. And these crosses with criminals were lined up on the side of the road and people, as they pass by on the road, will, they, they'll spit at them. They'll hurl insults at them. One of the longest recorded deaths on a cross took nine days before di finally dying of exhaustion. There was a Roman statesman during the time, Cicero, his name was. He described crucifixion as the most cruel and disgusting punishment, suggested that the very mention of the, of the cross should be far removed, not, not only from a Roman citizen's body, but from his mind, his eyes, his ears. That's how disgusting it was. Now, I don't know about you, I'd rather be burnt at the stake, stoned or beheaded. Crucifixion, it ain't pretty, right? Slow death is the worst death. And it's crazy. 
it's crazy because for, for many of us Christians, we wear a cross around our neck and that's what it depicts. That's what it represents. Yeah, we don't wear it for that purpose, do we? The cross also represents something far greater, doesn't it? For the Christian faith, it represents more than just an ancient tool of torture and capital punishment. It's more than just some, some logo or branding that Christians use. It represents who it was that died on that cross. As we read, uh, I'm picking up from verse 19, you can follow along. But we'll discover who Jesus truly is through the events that occur. Verse 19, Paul had, uh, Pilate sorry, had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read the sign for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city and the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin and Greek. Now the Jewish leaders get upset, but Pilate said, what I've written stands. Perhaps to, to mock them, to, to peeve them off, he writes it in bold for the world to see. Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. That's his title. Right? Aramaic for the Jewish speakers, Latin for the Romans, Greek, because that's a common language of the Mediterranean. You see, Pilate's onto something here. Sure, he, he did it to, to annoy them, but there's a powerful statement being made. The king has been crucified on a Roman cross. And while the people who put him on the cross doesn't believe this to be true, John's account, John's gospel, points us in that direction. Who is Jesus? Three times in the following verses, John uses the words, so the scripture would be fulfilled. It's in verse 24, it's in verse 28, it's in verse 36. You can see it. There are three instances where things happened to Jesus on the cross that was already spoken about. You could say it was prophesied in advance regarding who he is. The first one, verse 24, it talks about how they divided up clothes. They, they cast lots for his garment. The soldiers did that. This goes back to something that happened a thousand years ago, that was written a thousand years ago in Psalm 22, verse 18, by the great King David in, in Israel's history. He writes this, Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. Now this is happening to Jesus. A thousand years after King David. And there are Romans here doing that who don't know the Psalms. They don't know that this was written. They're fulfilling the prophecy. Behold that thought. What else is, is fulfilled? Verse 28. It tells us this. Later, knowing that everything had now been finished, and so the scripture would be fulfilled. Jesus said, I am thirsty. He's thirsty. A jar of vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a, on a stalk of a hyssop plant and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus says, it is finished. With that, he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. Now this, this doesn't sound right, does it? Jesus says, I'm thirsty. What do they give him? Do they give him a soda pop? A mountain dew? Crab juice? <laughs> Worse, they give him sour wine vinegar. But it happens, as he knew it would, to fulfill scripture. He fulfills scripture by quoting something as simple as, I am thirsty, to indicate who he is. You see, back in Psalm 69, verse 21, and you can read this for yourself in your Bible, it was written hundreds of years earlier again by King David, they, he writes this, they put gall in my food and gave me vinegar for my thirst. 
You see, vinegar was given for Jesus' thirst. He's fully aware that what, he, that what he's done, what he came to do, has been accomplished. His mission is complete. He was sent into our world to do God's work, to reveal the Father's name, to, to, to gather those given to him, to gather the church, to, to preach good news and the kingdom of God, to bring love to the poor, to the vulnerable of our world, to bring love to you and to me. And in love, he goes to the cross. In love, he does what he needs to do to fulfill scripture. It was all part of God's grand plan for us. He would be the Messiah that was prophesied. The savior of God's people. You see, Israel, they were waiting for a Jewish king that ruled with a a sword on a throne. But we didn't see that type of king come with his armies. We saw a king, but we we saw the king. We saw the king of the universe. He came down in the form of a man, a humble servant, to walk amongst the broken, to die on a cross. He drank that sour vinegar down. And then he breathed his last. Jesus died on that cross. But there's also a third instance, which John tells us was a fulfillment of Scripture. Again, to, to unveil to us, to, to paint the big picture of who Jesus is. And this will deepen our understanding. It will help us see the climax, really, of the entire gospel narrative that we have before us. Verse 36, I love this one. These things happen so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. We're told that they want to take the bodies down. And to take the bodies down, they need to be dead, right? So they, they want them to die faster. They'd break their legs to do that. Romans would usually leave the bodies up on the cross for a few days to set a public example. But this was, this was a request that was made to hasten death. How? Well, when you break the legs, you'd bleed out perhaps, or you'd suffocate quicker because uh, your legs can't support your body hanging there anymore. They come to Jesus and he's already dead. A soldier there double checks, grabs a spear, pierces his side, water and blood flow out. Verse 37 that we didn't read, it tells us that was also to fulfill scripture. It's a phenomenon with this blood and water stuff, and that's really fascinating. But the part about the bones not being broken, this part blows my mind. John is getting to the end of his jigsaw puzzle. We're at the part of the story where we find out who the hero behind the mask is. And you see all these references, they're from you know, thousands of years ago that we have in the Old Testament to read as well. They're being fulfilled at this time, this moment of Jesus dying on a cross. Now, you might be new to the Bible. You might be new to church. I'm so glad, again, you're with us. I want to explain a few things to you. Um, in the Old Testament, there's a book called the book of Exodus. And God, God, in that story of Exodus, rescues his people, Israel, out of slavery under Egypt. You might have heard about this in, in movies like, like the, the Prince of Egypt, right? And he saves his people through sending plagues and pestilence. And to commemorate that rescue, that great rescue of the Jewish people, they're called to celebrate it with a Passover meal. And there were regulations around how you do this meal. And one of those regulations, as you come together, you feast around the table, you eat an innocent, unblemished lamb, right? You bring that lamb, it's slain for the meal, it's a sacrifice. A sacrifice to symbolize rescue. And one of those regulations in preparing that lamb is that none of the bones could be broken. If they have to stay intact. Why? 
Well, God wanted that to happen. God wanted, he asked that of his people. It's interesting because there was a lamb that was chosen because God used a lamb uh, to save his people. For the last plague, an animal had to be killed, a life for a life. Blood was smeared on the doorposts of each house, and so the angel of death would pass over it. It was a part, so that's why they did the Passover meal. And for some reason, God said, don't break any of its bones. And that picture, do you see what's all pointing us to? God had it all planned out. God had it all planned out from the beginning. That it was going to be fulfilled. This picture of an innocent, sacrificial lamb was going to be fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus is that innocent lamb. He is the sacrificial lamb. He's the one, not, not just that the Passover meal speaks about. He's the one that the whole salvation story out of Egypt points us to. A good and gracious and compassionate God who sees and hears the cries of his people and in his great love and mercy rescues them. He sees you and he sees me. And in his great love, he sees humanity drowning in our sorrow and our sin. And he provides a solution. He provides a rescue plan too, doesn't he? John wants us to see Jesus is the Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world. What John is pointing out, out uh, to us in chapter 20, towards the end of his narrative, is what was stated really early in the beginning, in chapter 1 of his gospel. Chapter 1, verse 29, it was, he was telling about John the baptizer. He saw Jesus coming towards him and he said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It was already recognized in chapter 1. In chapter 3, God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son. 3.16, John 3.16. Right, the, the spoiler was there at the beginning of the gospel. We know who Jesus truly is. And here in chapter, chapter 19, towards the end of John's gospel, we're starting to see the whole picture being unveiled. He will be the sacrifice. He is the sacrifice that will rescue his people. What happened to Jesus on that cross around 2,000 years ago was no accident. God's plan of saving the world didn't fail with his death. The cross was God's plan A for salvation to come, planned long before the world began. What happened at the cross was to fulfill scripture. God's plan was to show his love. Jesus will be the Messiah, the Savior, the one that the world was waiting for. John's gospel, he lays it all out, all the pieces to bring us to the great resolution to humankind's greatest problem. It's interesting, isn't it? There's a, there's a, a movie called World War Z, uh, you know, the one with the sexy man, Brad Pitt. It's about a zombie apocalypse. And there's this line in this movie where they're discussing how to find a cure for the virus, right? For this zombie virus. And it, requir it requires them to look at all the breadcrumbs, the clues that mother nature has left for them. That's what they say in the movie. And it's much like what, what God is doing throughout history. That's how I think about how God has worked. Humans always searching for answers. We're wide in a certain way. God has created us in a certain way. He's left a clue in our hearts. We ask spiritual questions no matter what generation we live in, no matter who we are, no matter what background we, we come from. What is my purpose in life? Where can I find answers? Where, is, where, where, where can I find the answer to, to happiness and joy? Where can I find security, peace, or freedom? And God, he leaves these breadcrumbs. By giving us desires like this, he wants us to go looking for them. 
He wants us to be pointed to, to where we're going to find those answers. He wants us to see that we're going to find our salvation, not from some zombie virus, but the salvation from our deepest questions of suffering and our deepest need of, of, of sin. And we're going to find that in Him. All of it points back to God. When Jesus, he, he, what He did is He stepped into our world. He endured the, the suffering for us. Jesus, He took the virus. He put it upon Himself so we wouldn't have to face the consequences of it. Friends, this is so important to grasp. See, the sin of the world isn't just out there in the people that we think are rotten. It's right here in you and in me. It's the nature we're born into. Now, I get it. Sin sounds like a tough pill to swallow. I understand that for many, we think sin only encompasses, you know, encompasses immoral acts like, like promiscuity or, or adultery, getting our drink on or getting that murder business on. But the Bible says that sin goes far deeper. They're all symptoms, sure. Acts of sin, sure. But the sin in our hearts, you know, it, it, it does come out, doesn't it? You and I know what anger looks like. You and I know what greed looks like, dishonesty, impatience, hatred, pride, selfishness, laziness. We're born into a human nature that's stained by sin. But at its very root, sin ultimately means we're not right with God. None of us are immune from sin. It's a God complex. 100% of our default nature is to reject God and put ourselves on his throne. Where through life we reject God's infinite wisdom and instead use our limited understanding to plan out our lives. We're writing our own narratives, aren't we? Defining for ourselves how things should work without acknowledging God. Sin means we want to reject God's provision. And instead of thanking him, we grumble and complain against the author of life. Forever discontent with what we don't have. At its core, sin is a broken relationship with God because in our pride, we choose to reject his wisdom, goodness, love, and rule. You see, that's the story of humankind. We have a massive problem. You might not have been aware of this, but if you've got a relationship problem with, with God, you've got a problem with the source, the source of all, all, all provision, the source of all love, the source of all purpose, of all meaning, of all joy. We've got a problem with the God of order, who brings order into our creation. We have a problem with the God of the universe. Think about it. If humanity has a relationship problem with this God, there's no wonder that when we look around the world today, when we look into our own lives, there's disorder. There is anxiety. There is insecurity. There is loneliness. There is emptiness. There are broken relationships. There are struggles. Why? Because we've been separated from the God who actually has it all together perfectly. That's what sin does. It separates us. It distances us from this perfect and holy and righteous God. And wow, don't we understand that idea even more so in today's world? Where we're told to socially distance ourselves from one another. Of course we're going to be separated from Him. If God is pure and holy, perfect in His righteousness and goodness, we can't enter His presence, can we? We don't have a choice I mean, without Jesus, God is, is going to socially distant himself from us. Just like someone who, we're just like someone who's been overseas recently, who, who isn't allowed in the presence of others. We have to wait for time to pass to get the green light that we're clean, healthy, we can't infect others. But that's not the case with God. We can't just wait it out. We can't wait out 14 days and hope that we can approach God. That's not how it works. 
we can only make ourselves clean before God because of Jesus. You see, we can't do it on our own. We can't sanitize or wear masks or do a list of good works, good things, obeying a set of rules, thinking that we can enter into his presence because we think we're good people. You can try, right? You can stack it up against the holiness of God, but you'll always fall short of his standard of good. I know the temptation. The temptation is to think, I am a good person. I've done so many good things. God, don't I deserve a place at your table? But let's all be honest. I don't know about you, but if I came before God and said, look at this list of all this good stuff I've done, God. Look at how I performed, how I did in this lifetime. Compared to God, <laughs> it'd be a joke. I mean, a cringeworthy pun at best. God wouldn't be impressed. We need a savior. We need God himself to close the distance. And that's, what ha that's what's happened. Our king, Jesus, steps through that divide in love. He closes that distance. He closes that distance between us and God coming into our world, entering into our presence. He enters into our suffering. He enters into our sickness and takes our death so that the sin is removed. There is distance no longer. Friends, this is what the cross of Jesus accomplishes for us. He had to die so we could be welcomed in. He had to die so we could be made clean. Jesus is the innocent, holy, sacrificial lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. He takes away the virus of sin that stains our souls and fills our hearts, dies the death that we should have died, experiences the separation from God that we deserve, forsaken by God on our behalf. He takes it upon himself. It's the great substitution. Only he, the Son of God, can accomplish that for all of humanity, past, present, and future. It has to be Jesus, fully God, fully man, Jesus alone, who can and has saved us. And so, friends, where does your story go from here? Where are you finding the security, the peace, the freedom, the solution, the salvation to your deepest needs, to the brokenness that you feel, to the emptiness and sin? That exists in your hearts. We all want a salvation for our souls, don't we? Every one of us has a story. For many, often there doesn't seem to be a resolution to it. We hope for it. And, and, and we look for a sense of salvation in our loved ones, in our sex or our sexual identity, in a drink, in a pill, in binge watching that Netflix series, in our career or in our bank accounts. And we hope that that shot of adrenaline that we keep looking for will be fulfilling. It'll be lasting. It'll bring contentment. Some of us, we bank on our morality. Our good deeds, our charity means God will be happy with me. Or we think the universe will respond. The universe will, will be pleased with me. These things that we hope to hold on to, they never seem to truly satisfy, do they? Fulfillment always seems out of reach. We'll always feel the same longing, the discontentment, the futility. Life just seems like a house of cards that, that falls when the wind blows or when a pandemic hits. Something's always going to be amiss in this life. Friends, we can't save ourselves. Yet knowing the cross and the crown of Jesus can. Whether you've been a follower of Jesus for a long time or you're completely new to church and God, let me implore you, come to Jesus. Keep coming back to Jesus. Be humbled again and again before the cross of Christ. Come to him in surrender 
Acknowledge who he is. Acknowledge why he came to die. Acknowledge the sin of your heart that you, like me, like the rest of humanity, would 100% daily would choose living for ourselves over living for God. We need to confess the reality of sin and the sin that we commit. We need to humble ourselves before Jesus, who knows already the deep brokenness of our hearts. John Stott, he's a well-known Christian author. He writes, before we can begin to see the cross as something done for us, we have to see it as something done by us. Do you get that? You know, while here in the Gospel of John, it tells us it was the actions of the Romans, it was the actions of the Jewish leaders that put Jesus on the cross. We need to be honest with ourselves. Our sin put him there. Christ had to die. Christ had to die to bring salvation to you and to me. God was giving the climax to his grand story of salvation. Through the injustice that we see on the cross, God was putting his great love and his great justice, his mercy and his kindness, his glory and greatness for us on display. It was unveiled. You see, if we choose to remain distant from God, though, we, we remain distant from, from that resolution, our, our stories, the ones that we're looking, we're so desperately seeking after. But if we come to God, if we approach him in humility, through faith and trust in Jesus, there is forgiveness. You see, Jesus' death on the cross is, a simple, is, is his grace to us, his love shown to us. We can become before God, warts and all, and find acceptance. For God, none of us are too distant, too unclean, too broken for him to reach and make anew. When you surrender and turn to Jesus in trust and faith, when you walk in step with his spirit and you confess Jesus as Lord and Savior, the whole trajectory of your story is transformed. Your life cannot and will not be the same after meeting him. And yes, one day we'll tell the story of 2020 and how we were at the mercy of a pandemic at the mercy of a virus that overtook the world. It'll be a story that high school students will be writing assignments about and asking you firsthand, what was your account of it? Coming to you, asking, tell me, how, how do you survive COVID-19? Yet we, who have found our confidence in Christ, salvation at the cross, our stories will be told quite differently to the rest. Even amidst the fears and worries of our world, the gospel-centered life comes with peace, security, and hope because we've seen the whole picture that has been unveiled for us. Through, through faith in the cross, we know where we stand in God's redemption story. Our, our names have already been written into eternity. I'd love to pray for us. I'd love to pray for you. I'm aware that trusting Jesus with your life might be a huge step, but if you're ready to put your faith in his saving work for you, I'd love for you to also join me, us, in praying now. You can pray in your heart. You can follow along with me. Let me pray. Father, we praise you for your goodness and grace. We aren't perfect. We have lived lives that reject your authority, that have rejected your wisdom. And with all our guilt and all our shame, we lay before the cross. We ask you to forgive us of our sin. Please, Lord, reveal yourself to us. May your spirit be at work in us. Help us live lives of repentance and obedience. Live lives that are gospel-centered, that make much of King Jesus in our lives. And may you, Lord, be glorified in and through us. 
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.